The scripture for today's sermon is Mark 9, 14 through 29. The word of the Lord speaks to us like this. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds in his feet, teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. <clears throat> and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of God to us. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, church. Man, I feel like we're doing it right these days. That was a good one. Good morning, church. Good morning, right? Like, like over time, we've steadily learned here. Hey, uh, it's good to be with you guys today. If you're new to our church, um, my name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors, and uh, it's a privilege to open God's Word with you today. If you've got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 9, uh, the passage that was just read. Uh, we're steadily working our way kind of systematically, verse by verse, section by section, chunk by chunk, through uh, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus recorded uh, by Mark. And so um, this is where we've been. This is where we are and it'll even take us up through Easter, so we'll be here for a while. If you're looking for something to read, I encourage you to jump in uh, to this gospel account. Um, even before I jump in to pray today, I just want to say, uh, even by the reading that uh, was given this morning, there, there's a lot of ministry in this passage. Uh, there's an invitation in this passage to get down below the line from just what we believe in our heads and, and think with our minds to those places in our chest that sometimes we don't know how to navigate and we don't know where to go. And so even as I pray today, I just want to invite you, if you're up for it, if you have the courage like, to, to go there with me today as we try to unfold this passage. Amen? All right. Let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we come to you today confessing the same thing that the one in this passage confesses, and that's that we believe, but help our unbelief. 
And I pray that you'd help us to navigate the places in our chest, the places in our soul, the places in our longing that we don't know how to navigate on our own, that sometimes we just assume not to navigate, but the places that you want to meet us. And so for the variety of ways we're coming to your word today, unsure of whether you'll speak, maybe it's a wish dream that you speak, um, hoping that you do so like you did once before. God, I just pray that you grant us new faith today to encounter your word. Thank you that your word never returns empty, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And so we offer this prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe you've heard the saying before, uh, certainly um, it's been tossed around even more here in recent days, but that history, the history of the world, the history of events, is the stuff that's written by the winners. That winners get to write history. Winners are the ones that get to record it for us. They're the ones left that get to give us the interpretation and the implications of things. And that, that statement is true, and I understand this sentiment so far as it goes. But one of the things that helps me understand the Bible, one of the things that helps me believe the Bible, maybe you're coming in today a bit of a skeptic on whether or not this ancient book is true and trustworthy. One of the things that helps me believe the trustworthiness of the Scriptures are all the moments that the so-called winners who are writing this account to us write in their own failures. (laughs) They write in their own failures. So, So consider, like, by today's standards, you think about King David in the Old Testament. Surely, he wouldn't want the scandals of his household recorded forever in sacred literature, right? Like, surely he's going to pay someone off or, or do something in order to get those things redacted. His own affair with Bathsheba, the fracture of his own house, his own son chasing him out of the city of the king to take his own throne. His life is a wreck, His kingdom is a wreck, and yet he's the one known to be a man after God's own heart. Surely, if it were left to him, his own failures wouldn't be recorded here if he's a winner, right? You think about Abraham in the Old Testament. Surely he would have made sure, if he has control over Scripture, that his shining moment of selling his wife out as his sister so that the Pharaoh wouldn't kill him and rather give her over to him as a mistress— Surely he would go, hey man, if I'm a winner, can we just please take that moment out? Like, that's, that's not a good look, Father Abraham, who had many sons, right? That's, that's not a good look. I could go to so many more of these moments where the so-called winners in Scripture write in their own failures. Then you have the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And isn't it shocking that the leader of the disciples, sort of the spokesperson, the apostle Peter, the, the preacher of Pentecost, isn't it amazing that over time he didn't work to have his serial denial of Jesus redacted from Scripture, right? Like, that's a moment where you're like, hey, I, like, I don't mind you guys including the moment where I tried to chop off the Roman soldier's ear with a sword but didn't get his ear, it just got a lobe. Like, I don't mind if you out me for not a good shot with a sword, but, like, can you take out the moment where I, like, deny Jesus three times, you know? Or the fact that collectively the disciples out themselves over and over again as a group of cowards, prideful, racially biased, confused, and doubting, right? Isn't it amazing that among so many other things, like because these testimonies are actually in Scripture, it passes the smell test of truthfulness, right? Like they don't cover up their failures. So in the case of Scripture, you might say from a human standpoint that it's the winners who are the ones writing history that we hold in our hands. 
but someone forgot to tell these guys that you shouldn't make yourself look like such losers over and over and over again. But maybe that's because, maybe that's because it's our losses. Maybe it's because it's our losses and our failures that set the scene and they shine the light so brightly on our champion. We don't have to cover them over. We don't have to pretend like they didn't exist. We can actually show them that they existed and actually tell you that far worse should have happened if we were left to ourselves. Because someone else has come to do something else about those things, we can name them freely. That's certainly what's happening in the text today. Where we pick up is the scene at the bottom of the mountain. Last week, if you're with us, we covered this moment of transfiguration. It's the apex of the book. It's the high point of the book. What's happening in the narrative of Mark is that everything from chapter 1 leads to the passage we were at last week, and everything from that moment now follows down from that passage. It's the moment where we've been asking the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this man that's come onto the scene? He takes three disciples with him up onto the mountain, and he's there transfigured before them shown to be God himself, not just man, not just one who's like them, but one who's like them, but so much more than them, the God-man, fully divine, truly man. Moses and Elijah show up. They testify that he's the one they've been waiting for. The voice of God the Father shows up to testify what we should do about him. It was a moment unlike any other in the top of that mountain, and now they've come down the mountain, and what they encounter couldn't be more opposite. They go from a moment of heavenly glory, sort of this foretaste of the, of the life of heaven to come, but then they come down the mountain and it couldn't be more opposite. A vision of glory, the holiness of Jesus, hearing the audible voice of God the Father to then the next moment, a moment of complete chaos. And there's two things I want us to see in this text today. And the first is this, holiness meets us in our chaos. Holiness meets us in our chaos. So Jesus and the other three disciples, they come down the mountain where immediately they're confronted with chaos. What's happening here as the text picks up is that the nine other disciples hung back. They're at ground zero, and they're now in a yelling match with their critics because they can't cast out this demon that a father has brought before them that's oppressing his son. They can't cast it out. He's trying to get help. And he's heard a rumor that the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself are in this sort of business, and so he brings them. They can't do it, and so now they're in this yelling match. The scribes, their critics, are there to tokenize. They're there to scrutinize. They're there to put them under a microscope for any, any sort of failure that comes about to then put them on blast and say, see, I told you, this whole movement of Jesus is a hoax and it's foolish. And all the while, the disciples, they're trying to defend themselves, the scribes trying to justify their own political and religious platforms, there's still this boy laying on the ground in like an epileptic seizure on steroids, being harassed by a demon, and they're trying to posture and justify political position or righteousness and ministry. It's a crazy, chaotic event. And this is a moment where you'd expect Jesus to come down the mountain and just sort of go, hey, you guys need a dad. Like, can someone parent this moment? Okay, scribes, you go to your room. Disciples, you go to your room. Everyone to their corners, and I'll talk to you. You just wait there and don't touch anything. Turn off your devices and your video games. I'll talk to you when I'm good and well ready, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And here's what I want you to see in this. The same glory 
And the same holiness that was revealed on the mountain is the same glory and the same holiness that meets us in our madness, in our chaos, and in our pain. The same stuff. The stuff that we'd often assume is only reserved for those most precious and sacred moments is actually the stuff that comes into the moments that we would assume it doesn't connect there. It doesn't belong there. It actually comes. This week I had a meeting with a young guy in our church, and um, man, I was so proud of him. He, uh, he reached out to me, and we set up a time together, and he just said, hey, I, I'm dealing with some anxiety that I've never dealt with before in my life. And um, like it's, it's causing a whole lot of issues in my life, and I'm spiraling, and uh, he's like, I don't know what to do. And he said, uh, I, I've, my whole life I've just been a guy who... Um, works hard, keeps my head down, and eventually I'll just be able to figure out whatever's going on in my life, and that's worked my whole life until, until now. And I just said to him, I said, man, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so proud of you, you know? And uh, initially I said, I know you've come to me, one of your pastors, thinking you'll get help, but let me just first say me too. <laughs> me too, and all of that. And then I said, also, you just need to know that I know it feels like you're intensely alone right now. But there are so many other people in our church, and there are so many other people in our city that are experiencing the same kinds of things, but they don't or haven't yet experienced the kind of bravery to raise their hand and say all this, you know. And so he's got this moment of intense chaos and pain and confusion, and we just had a conversation around all of that. And, and here's one of the things that just I discovered in that conversation that really, that really, help bring some light to this text. When we're in those kinds of spaces, there's a couple of ways we respond to God. There's, there's a couple of ways that we can tend to respond to God, and, and both don't work, <laughs> but, but we do them all the time. And the first is this, that when we're in those places of chaos, we'll try to keep God at arm's length because we feel like we have to prove ourselves or to show him that we can do it. And so we'll keep God at arm's length to, so, to say, well, you know, gosh, I hate that I'm here, but, but God, I, I, got, I got this. I, I can fix this. And we, the reason we sort of respond to God this way in the moment of chaos is because we're ashamed and we're embarrassed that we've gotten ourselves into this kind of a spot. And so, well, man, I, I've got a return on investment, all the grace that you've given. I, I, can, I can do something about this. And we do this because if in our minds we think, if I can keep God at bay, then I don't have to deal with what he's going to say about me, and I don't have to deal with what he's going to say about my situation, and I'll eventually just get this thing figured out, and then I'll make good again with God on the back end once I've done that. And that's a way we can respond to God in a moment of chaos. And there's another way that we can tend to respond to God, and it's almost from the other angle. So where on the one hand, we want to keep God at a distance. There's the other way we respond to God. We go, I actually want him to come close. Like, I actually want God to come close to me in this moment of chaos, but I'm afraid that he's distanced himself, and he won't come close because he's mad at me, and he's disappointed in me that I've gotten myself in this spot, and he's just waiting for me to figure out how to get my act together, and I won't be able to have fellowship with him until I can present a better version of myself. So on the one hand, chaos hits. I'll keep God at arm's length. Or, I want God to come close, but I'm so afraid he won't. Right? And the problem with both of those responses to God is this passage. 
This passage is actually the antidote. It's the remedy to those kinds of lies that we believe. Because what's happening in this passage is that the holiness that we know that Jesus has that was experienced on the mountaintop isn't about us working our way up there as if it's about us getting to God, but instead it's the holiness on the mountain that comes down to meet us in our mess and in our chaos. Exactly the place that you might be afraid that God won't meet you or won't say anything is exactly the place he wants to meet you and say something. And not for your shame, but for your salvation. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? There's a passage in John 3 that reads into this moment so well. This is after John 3.16, the famous verse that is thrown up on, behind field goal posts all over Sunday TV. It says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, Isn't that just good news? (laughs) For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. God didn't send his son into the world to point his finger at you. But he sent his son into the world that it might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Man, good news again. Whoever believes on Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so holiness comes to meet us in our mess. That's the first thing today. The second thing is this. How do we respond? How do we respond? It's the second thing I want us to see today. Because in this passage, there are two very different responses to Jesus. And the major players in all of this are the disciples and the father of this boy who's being harassed by a demon. And so I'll just storyboard their responses. The disciples, Jesus comes down the mountain, and they're arguing with their critics. They're in this whole sort of argument and yelling match about image management. They're defensive and defending themselves. They're posturing and trying to explain themselves. Even though they failed in the face of this moment, they're trying to say, no, it's not like that. And you have the disciples piping in over one another to the scribes, and the scribes yelling back and giving their argument for why they're false and they're fake. And then the disciples trying to justify themselves. They're blame shifting. Nathaniel, you got in my way while I was trying to cast this demon out. And the other one's saying, no, I didn't get in your way. You were failing miserably. So I tried to cast the demon out, and they're arguing about this whole thing. And they're confused why their past successes in casting out demons hasn't worked in this moment. Because remember, Jesus has given them the authority to cast out demons. And they've done so with great success even to come to tell him about how it went. They were freaked out that it actually went well. Jesus said, I want you to go out and do this. They're like, yeah, right, us? And then they go out and they're like, it worked! And then now, it didn't work. I don't understand. They had come under the conclusion that now the gift of God to them to exercise ministry was now under their control. And here's what's interesting. They never once apologized to Jesus for getting themselves into this mess. (laughs) You would totally expect, like, in the moment where Jesus sees them getting in a yelling match with the naysayers, they would have gone, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm super embarrassed. Can you, like, help this whole thing I've gotten myself into? Or maybe even later after the whole thing has calmed down and Jesus has saved the day to go, man, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have talked like that. There's no such repentance in these disciples. No such repentance. They're just going, why didn't it work? They're not sorry. This is their response to Jesus coming down into their mess. Blame shifting, posturing, negotiation, and trying to prove. 
Now the father, on the other hand, he's just trying to find help. The father has come into this moment risking looking like a failure. Probably the town knew about this father's son because over and over again the scriptures say that the demons uh, 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 oppressing him had tried to throw him into fire, into water, and to drown him. This would have been a public spectacle. Can't you just keep that trapped in your house? Why do you have to bring that out here? And he would have bore all kinds of parent shame. Uh, what kind of dad are you that you let you, what kind of house are you, what kind of house do you have that this is the kind of stuff going on in your house? He would have, he was risking looking like a failure to bring this, this out in front of Jesus. He was surrendered nonetheless. Can someone just help me? I don't care that you disciples have failed. I don't care that this might not be a hope. I just want someone to help. Can someone just please, could you guys quit arguing? My son is here. He's begging for mercy. And then there's this moment where he owns his own weakness. Totally countercultural. He says, if you can help, would you please just help? And Jesus says, if I can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And he goes, okay, fine, I believe, but would you please just help my unbelief? We're going to hang out more around that line. And where the disciples believed they had control over the power of God for ministry, this man is just submitted to the power of God, hoping it works for him. It's very different. And so I just want to say, like, based on these two responses to Jesus, how many of us like the disciples? Because this is, if you want, you're, we're always trying to find which character am I in the story, you know? And in this moment, we're actually the disciples because we're the people, more often than we want to admit, are coasting on past successes. We're coasting on maybe even past confessions of Jesus with belief about God full in our heads, but hearts that are cold to those affections. I have all the right answers. I can tell you all the right stuff. I've, I've prayed that prayer back then. I've been devoted back then. I've been on mission trips, yet your heart is cold to a deep and vital, in, in a life of vitality with God. Me too. We're the kind of people, like the disciples in this moment, who settle for appearance over formation. Just so long as I look the part, just so long as people think of me as the part, just so long as people think well of me and as a godly person, as a moral person, as an ethical person, just so long as they think of me as someone they want to be around, I'll take the thoughts of me, I'll take the perception of me, despite the fact that I know in the internal place what they think of me isn't as true as I wish it were. But I'll settle for the appearance of all that I want rather than formation of what's needed to be true. This is where the disciples were. Were people who prefer execution, just getting stuff done, productivity, living the, we settle for execution rather than communion with God. Just so long as everything's getting done, just so long as it's upward and to the right, just so long as it all looks just so, well that's fine enough regardless of whether or not I've actually had any communion with the Father. Appearance over formation, execution over communion. And here's what's interesting, back to the conversation with the guy this week, is after a while, I started to say like, hey, here's something I'm learning, and maybe it's helpful for you, but I'm just at the beginning phases of learning this, so I'll just offer it not as an expert, but as like a beginning learner. That it's actually impossible to be a Christian when you insist on being strong. 
If you insist on being known as strong and you insist on covering over your weaknesses, that's actually completely opposite of what it means to be a Christian. And yet we spend so much of our lives insisting on showing people we're strong and we're able and we have no weaknesses. We'll shove them down, we'll fake it till they make it, and we'll call ourselves a Christian. That actually can't happen. The entry point into the faith is outing yourself as a sinner who's busted and broken and can't do it. Like, that's the entry point of the faith, and it's not just the entry point, it is the journey of the entire life of discipleship, is just learning more and more that you're busted and broken, you can't do it, and you're more of a sinner than you realize on the day you first confessed you're a sinner. Isn't that crazy? You can't insist on being strong and be a Christian, it's literally opposite. And this isn't a crutch, this is just me being eyes wide open and honest about my condition. And so what's interesting about this story is clearly it's not about the strength of your faith that gets a reaction from God. Because this man goes, I believe, but I think I don't believe, and I think I might believe, and I want to believe, but could you just please help my unbelief? It's not the strength of this man's faith that counts for anything. It's not the amount of his effort to exhaust all of his resources that counts. We often think that's what it's true for us. I've just done every, God helps those who help themselves. It's not the strength of your faith that counts. It's not the ability of all of your efforts that counts. The only thing that counts is the object of your faith. It's not faith in faith. It's who is your faith in? Where does your faith lie? This is why Jesus says, even faith the size of a mustard seed, hardly anything at all could say to that mountain into the sea, it would be cast there. It's not that you are suffering as you are because you don't have enough faith. None of your life is about how small your faith is or about how hard you're working. It's where does your faith lie? Great or small matters not. Who is it in? Because Jesus saves to the uttermost everyone who comes to God through him, whether in confidence or trembling. And so here's the whole thing. Holiness has come to meet you in your mess. Holiness is coming to meet you in your mess. The thing that you think holiness wants nothing to do with is the thing that holiness wants everything to do with. And our response is the response of the Father. Lord, I believe. Would you please help my unbelief? There's a point to where I thought I would like no longer need that prayer but I guess I'm learning that 37, I'll be praying that to the day I drop. Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? One question before we move to our landing today. Where are the places in your life where like the disciples, you've tried everything you know to do and you're still coming up dry? You've tried everything you know to do and you're still coming up dry. 28 and 29, it says, when they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Like, why couldn't this work? And he said to them, this kind can only be driven out. Um, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so this is the reply of Jesus, that this this kind, this, this kind of spiritual warfare, this kind of fracture in the world, this kind of bustedness can't be driven out by anything but prayer. 
And he's not saying there that prayer is this now, like this transactional exchange that like when, it no, when nothing else works, you should pray and then the, what you want will come out of it. He's saying that prayer becomes the place where you offer your weakness to God. Prayer becomes the place where you offer your weakness to God and you find that the holiness on the mountain really does meet you in your chaos. It really does meet you in your chaos. Lord, I believe Will you please help my unbelief? And the reason that Jesus, here's the finish today, the reason that Jesus can take this young boy by the hand who lays there rigid and as a corpse and raise him up is because he came down the mountain of transfiguration into the valley of the shadow of death. And he does so with the power of life in his hands. You see, here's, here's the shadow of the book now. This mountain of transfiguration isn't the last mount we're going to see. It casts a shadow on another mount called Calvary. And it's at Calvary where holiness revealed on transfiguration would deal with our chaos head on. Jesus deals with your chaos and mine, eyes wide open. He doesn't flinch. He sets his face like flint to go win us. And every chaos that threatens to stand between us and God, every moment where we want to distance him to prove ourselves, or every moment we want him to come close, but we're afraid he won't, every moment of anxiety and depression and addiction, every moment of everything that would threaten to keep us from God is put to death in his death and is defeated in his empty tomb. And chaos is met by holiness. That doesn't mean it's magically fixed and goes away, but it does mean that you won't be left there alone. And so our response is again the response of the Father. Lord, I believe. I think I believe. I want to believe. I want to want to believe. But will you please help my unbelief? And Jesus is not bothered by that kind of prayer. Let's pray. Maybe just take a second and offer your own prayer. Of the place that you, you need God to meet you. Hey, stay there in that moment. Hey, where is the place that you've just started to assume that God won't speak into this area of my life and I just now have to learn to cope? Would you say in that place, Lord, help my unbelief? Father, we come to you. We respond to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, who didn't come to condemn us, but to save us. And Father, we want to say, <laughs> please help us say and keep saying, help our unbelief. God, thank you that it's not the strength of our faith that counts, but it's where our place lies that counts for everything. Jesus, would you have our faith? Our faith is not in faith, our faith is in you. 
you. You make the difference, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.